There are three major themes, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time here. And the reason is, I really believe that you have to understand these themes, especially the second one, to really understand Jesus' dynamics with the Jews, the disciples, and the Pharisees. Um, there, are, there are four major groups that we're going to see in, God, in all the Gospels, but Luke's especially. And that is just the Jewish people in general, his disciples that have, are closer to him than anybody else, the Pharisees that have shaped the worldview of all these first two groups, and then the Gentiles who were like, I don't even know what's going on here. So this guy just came up and did really cool things. And these are the four major groups that you're going to see. The first major theme that we see, like a piece of thread tying all the quilt squares and gospel look together, is the theme of Christology and salvation. Now, Christology is just a big, fancy theological word for the thinking, the reasoning, the thoughts, the study of who Christ is and his nature, being, and works. What is the correct and right way to think and view Jesus and salvation? And the big fancy word for salvation here is soteriology. This is the major theme. Who is this Christ and how is he going to save? And that's a major theme. And that kind of makes sense too, for it's about Christ. It begins with what I already talked about. For Luke, the Holy Spirit is a major threat that is working the life of Christ and his works, his deeds, his, um, his, sorry, his, um, his deeds, his words, and guiding him in his purpose and plan and mission. He is the one that brings a new hope and a new heir and a new covenant that draws people in this covenant relationship. The Holy Spirit is fulfilling what has always been talked about in the prophets, but it's being executed in a way that is brand new and has never been seen ever in the history of Israel. Luke Chapters 1 through 2 reveal Jesus as the long-awaited Messianic king of the Jews had come to usher in the kingdom of Yahweh. For the Jews, they first and foremost saw the Messiah as a conquering warrior king. Genesis 49 verses 8 through 12 is the first prophecy of the Messiah ever in the Bible. And it talks about that a scepter, a ruler's staff, a ruler's staff is for shepherding your people, and a scepter is all the better to bash your head in with, is going to never depart from between the legs of Judah until it comes to the one that it belongs to. And he will tie his donkey, which is a symbol of kingship in the ancient world, to the choicest vine. He will tie his colt to the branch. And the wine is symbolic of joy, abundance of joy, abundance of life, abundance of hope and peace. And he will wash his garments in wine, meaning he will be clothed in joy and peace and abundance. And his eyes will be darker than wine, not meaning his, the eyes are the window to the soul. So his personality and character will be joy and peace and hope. And his teeth will be whiter than milk, meaning his words will be sweet and life-giving. And this is who the Messiah will be. The first prophecy portrays a king who is everlasting, who builds a kingdom that actually brings peace, hope, and joy abundantly to his kingdom. And that he himself is true to his words, and his words bring life. 
And no ruler, president, dictator, king has ever done anything like that in all of human history. This is who you will be. So king, kingdom, peace on earth. The second prophecy ever in the Bible is Numbers 24. And it's a man by the name of Balaam, who is told by God he has to bless Israel. And he gives seven oracles. And in the fourth oracle, he says, Behold, I see him, but not near. He's coming, but not yet. A star will rise up out of Jacob. Now, the star in the ancient world was the planet Venus. They actually thought Venus was a star until time went by and they realized it's a planet. And Venus is the brightest light that appears first every morning. And it became associated with conquering and victory. And so it's the morning star. And kings would often refer to themselves as the morning star. And what they were saying is, I am the most dominant, enlightened, conquer, victorious king that will bring light and life to your kingdom. And without me, you have no hope. And it was a prideful, arrogant way of boasting (laughs) ultimate conquership. And as all the kingdoms are trying to destroy Israel, Balaam says, out of Jacob will come the star. And at the end of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the bright morning star. I am the root of David. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And it's right after he's conquered all evil in the world. And then it goes on and says, this star will rise up out of Jacob and he will crush the skulls of all of Israel's enemies. That's lethal. So the second prophecy is a conquering king. So basically, with the first two prophecies, you get the peaceful lamb who will bring peace, and you get the conquering lion who will dominate. And the Jews, that's what they've been looking forward to. All the other prophets just build on those two concepts. And so for them, they're awaiting a king who will conquer all the enemies and crush Rome's skulls, and therefore will then bring peace to Israel because it will no longer be under the boot of Rome anymore. And when they say Messiah or Greek Christ, that's what they're thinking. A military warrior king who will come with a sword on a horse, destroy the enemies. Think Avengers, Captain America, okay, Iron Man, all these. They're thinking of that. And he's going to destroy and bring utopian peace on earth for Israel. And that's what they're awaiting. And they're right. The prophecies over and over and over again emphasize this aspect of Christ. And when Luke starts his gospel, this is what he starts off with. It's this idea. And so Jesus is king. That's for us when we think Christ or Messiah, we think Savior dying on the cross. But that's actually not the predominant number of prophecies. They did prophesy that Jesus would die on the cross, but there are very few of those compared to conquering, ruling, dominant king. And that is what you should first and foremost always think of Christ as your Lord, as the one that you bow down to and submit, not as the buddy-buddy that you can hang out with. Now, don't get me wrong, that is who he is. But too often as modern-day Christians, we go to lovable Jesus who just makes me feel good and not fall on my knees and bow before him and obey him when he tells me what to do. This is what they're thinking. And Jesus validates this. Not only does he come when the angels show up to the shepherds and say, Behold, your king is born today. But then Jesus comes along and he begins to do miracles. 
and he begins to claim to be the king, and he validates it. Because in a Jewish way of thinking, the only person who has power to do miracles is Yahweh, and the only person who can do miracles is one that Yahweh approves of. So if Jesus is doing miracles and Yahweh approves of him, therefore what he's claiming is true. And so he claims to be the Messiah, and he validates it through his miracles and his healings. Now, on a little side note here, there is no other religion where any other figure does miracles. Okay? Buddha, Muhammad, all of them, they, they have never been testified to do miracles. Now, so you might be thinking, whoa, wait a minute. Didn't Buddha stop a raging elephant from killing everybody in the village one day miraculously? Yes. Didn't he make a kaleidoscope of images appear in the sky miraculously? Yes. Well, according to the Triptychah, I don't know if that actually happened or not. And didn't Muhammad split the moon in half and put it back together? I mean, what about those, right? Okay, yes. But what Jesus has done that no other person has ever done, any other messianic-like figure of any other religion, is healing miracles. Nowhere through all these other religions that exist do any of these leaders ever heal people, make them raise them from the dead, or restore their health, or make them see again, or any of that kind of stuff. They're, they, they're, they've conquered, Muhammad conquers great things. They do miraculous like um, light shows and that kind of stuff, but not really healing, restoring people. And this is unique. And yes, there are some claims that people could heal here and there and there, but not on the massive scale that Christ does it. Yes, there's stories of this witch out there who healed somebody or this miracle worker over here who could heal people, but not someone who literally walked through the streets and just touched people and people were bam, 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 healed. And all the stories of other healings, there are a handful of them throughout their entire lifetime. And they're always done through rituals and incantations and, and spells or herbs or medicines or that kind of stuff. But Jesus walks through the crowds and just touches people and they heal. And he heals thousands of people on a daily basis, not every day, but multiple days that go by. And, and he's feeding thousands of people at once. And he's raising people from the dead, which has never happened in any other religion or any other story, because most religions don't even value the human body to even want to bring it back, let alone to be able to do that to begin with. Um, and, but that he actually does this. And, that, and then also, too, that people can just walk up to him like the woman who has the bleed and just touch him, and she gets healed. You will never see that in any other religion, any other stories, or any other thing. That, that just that instantaneousness, without incantations, without words, without herbs, without anything. Just unlimited power flowing out of him, so to speak, for lack of a better phrase. And so he proves that. So this leads us to Jesus' ministry continue. So those are the first two chapters. As we keep going to chapters 3 and 4, we begin to see that Jesus is different. He's not just king, but he's something that the prophets have spoken of, but the Jews missed. He's God. He is the incarnation of God himself. And not just God's appointed servant like Moses, who will have God work through him in amazing ways, but God himself. He is the incarnation of Yahweh himself. And this is rooted in Daniel seven thirteen through 14. And Daniel seven thirteen through 14, this is by far one of the most clearest prophecies of Jesus being the God-man. God and human simultaneously in himself. And in, Genesis, in Daniel seven fourteen, 
it says, Behold, I saw one like the Son of Man walking up to the throne of God, coming on the clouds. And he walked up to the throne and put out his hand, and Yahweh gave him all power, all sovereignty, all authority over all peoples and all nations, and an everlasting kingdom that will never end. What you need to understand about this prophecy is, first, Daniel sees a man, a human, walking in heaven. In the ancient world, no humans were ever in heaven. Isaiah had a vision of heaven in chapter 6, and he never saw humans. And Jacob has a vision, and he sees angels going up and down, the, the, the stairway or the tower, um, the ziggurat, and he never sees humans. Ezekiel has a vision of cherubim pulling God around on his chariot and never sees humans. Um, and we see, we see these visions over and over again, and never are there humans. Why? Because humans can't go to heaven in the First Testament. And the reason is, they're sinners. And nobody who has sin can come into the presence of God, because they'll die. And this is why Jesus is so important. Because only through the blood of Christ can our sins be paid for and can we be cleansed so we can actually walk into the presence of God and not die and dwell with Him for all eternity. This is why it's so significant and revolutionary when Jesus turns to the thief on the cross and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. He was the, I don't know if he was the first one, literally, maybe somebody died like right between him and Jesus, but, but he was one of the first who actually would be ushered in heaven immediately. Now, where did the First Testament believers go then? Well, they went into, the, for all intents and purposes, the best we can understand, a soul sleep. They just kind of died, and their soul went into the sleep, or their spirit went into sleep. And I, we, nobody knows exactly how it worked, but this is our guess. And you're like, well, that's a long time to sleep. But yeah, but remember when you're sleeping, it's like seconds. I mean, so they close their eyes, and they open up, and they're going to heaven. So it's not that big of a deal for them, but for us, it's thousands of years going by. But nobody could go into the presence of God without their sin being atoned for. No one sees humans in heaven because there's no humans in heaven yet because Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. And then Daniel sees his human, and that's mind-blowing. That means that he's without sin. Because the only way you can get into heaven is without sin. Either pre-fall, Adam and Eve, or post-Jesus Christ, the blood. And this figure is in between both. And he sees him going to heaven. So the first thing he sees is a human who has no sin. And then he's coming on the clouds. And the only thing that is above the clouds are angels and gods and Yahweh. So if you're a Jew, it's an angel or Yahweh. If you're a pagan, it's gods. But that's the only thing that's the cloud writer. So if you've ever played Super Mario Brothers, and it's got that little figure in the cloud that drops bombs on it, it's basically a god trying to kill you. Okay, the cloud writers are gods and angels. Now he's telling you this human is not only sinless, but he's divine. Okay? Well, you don't know if he's Yahweh or an angel or a god or what, but he's divine at least. And then he comes to the throne, and Yahweh literally hands him all power, all sovereignty, all authority over all things on the earth, and an everlasting kingdom that never ends. Well, the only one who has absolute sovereignty over all things, and the only one who has a kingdom that lasts forever, is Yahweh himself. What Daniel sees is a figure that is a human who is sinless, who is also Yahweh himself. That's mind-blowing to the Jews, but also anathema to the Jews. Because you're in exile now for worshiping idols and worshiping false gods, and Daniel's in exile, and he's like saying, oh, by the way, the Messiah will be a god and a human at the same time, and he'll be perfect without sin. And you're like, no, 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 I'm not going for that one. 
I'm not going to acknowledge any other thing other than Yahweh being God because this is why we're in exile. And I don't want to be in exile anymore. But at the same time, you're a Jew who knows that Daniel is seeing a vision from God and that God always tells the truth and you can't go contrary to the will of God. And if you do, that's sin and then you go into exile. Now you have God telling you, you can only worship God alone and there is no other God. But then he's also telling you, by the way, this figure is also God and it's me and I, I'm more than one, but I'm not. Because here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And, and what do people do with things that are very conflicting and might actually cost you your salvation or your relationship with God? You put on a shelf and you don't talk about it. Whenever anything is confusing or weird to us, and we know we can't deny it, but we also don't want to go there and deal with it, we just ignore it. And there's a lot of places in the Bible that Christians do that too. Okay, We have a lot of passages that you don't hear very many sermons on them because... No offense to your pastors, but they're difficult. They're struggling. And, and some pastors tackle them. I didn't say no sermons. I just said not a lot. And, and because we're, we're afraid to deal with them. They're, they're difficult. And rightfully so, you should be like holding them in reverence and cautious. So they ignore it. So from this point on, nobody's allowed to call themselves a son of man. Now, son of man just means I'm human. But after Daniel, it's a whole lot more than just that. And the Jews don't ever allow anybody to call themselves that. They don't refer to that. And it's, it's just it's that thing we don't want to talk about. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and he actually doesn't call himself the Messiah. He doesn't call himself the Savior. He doesn't call himself all these things that we usually call himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. And the phrase Son of Man is used of Jesus, of himself, and of the Gospel writers more than any other title or phrase in all four Gospels. And when he says things so that you may know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, I say, get up and walk. I tell you the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I tell you that Son of Man will come back one day riding on the clouds to judge you. Then just go to Caiaphas. Because when Jesus says, I am the Son of Man who will come on the clouds to judge you one day, Caiaphas rips his clothes and says, he has just confessed being God kill him. If you didn't know what Son of Man meant, Caiaphas tells you what it means. And the Jews also, Pharisees later tell you that as well. He claims to be God. And it's not the title that people throw on him. It's the title that he owns. Over and over again, I am the Son of Man. And more than just God, but human God. Sinless human God. Sinless human God who will rule over all things. And there is kingship there, there is divinity there. And this is what Luke begins to develop starting around chapter 4 with his, well, 3 with his anointing, and then 4 when he passes the temptation away that nobody ever has, and then he begins to do things. So that when he begins to do miracles, you think of him in a whole new light. Because if he's claimed to be God, which is blasphemous, but he can only do these miracles if God is giving him the power to do it, then not only is Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man, but Yahweh is claiming him to be the Son of Man. This is the one that Daniel has talked about. Now we'll come back to that, because when we get to Caiaphas, we'll come back to the Son of Man title and develop it more, and when we get to his resurrection, we'll talk about it even more, because there's a little bit more to that. But this is where he's going. This is the other thing you must understand. A lot of people like to say, well, Jesus is just a great teacher. But I don't believe that he was God. C.S. Lewis came up with a phrase that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. 
Because you can't get around the fact that Jesus claimed to be God. If he's claiming to be God over and over and over again, most people aren't going to be like, oh, he's a great teacher. Like, if I got up in my school and I would teach classes and I would demand that the kids worship me as if I'm a God and call me God and I, I claim that I have all power, how long do you think I would last in the school? No parent would ever think, well, he's a little crazy, but he's a good teacher. And that's why we send our kids there. But just ignore all that bowing down and worshiping part that he makes my kids do all the time. Nobody would tolerate that. Okay, if your pastor did that, he wouldn't last long in the congregation, right? And I don't care if you're a believer or not. Nobody's going to tolerate somebody who forces you to bow down and worship them on a regular basis. And nobody's going to be like, well, he's a little crazy, but man, does he know his stuff. Okay, or she knows her stuff. Nobody's going to say that. They're even going to think he's a liar, conning us all by getting us to worship like David Koresh and Heaven's Gate and um, all these other things. Or that he's a lunatic because he literally thinks he is God and he's acting like it. So he should be locked up. He can't be a great teacher. If he's Lord, then C.S. Lewis says all you can do is bow down and worship him and obey him. And, and this is what Jesus is making very clear. He owns it. And even if you don't understand the Son of Man title, when he does miracles and heals people, people will come and they will bow down and worship him. And never once he says, no, 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 don't, don't do that. I'm not, I'm not God. You can't do that. In John's revelation, John is so wowed by the angels he's seeing. He's seen them in a way that nobody's ever seen them before. And he begins to bow down and worship the angel. John, who walked with Christ and lived with Christ, knew Jesus God, believes he's God, knows Yahweh's God is so blown away by the angels that even he's tempted to bow down and worship them. And at that moment, the angel says, no, 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 you don't worship me. You worship him who is on the throne, the lamb, only him. Jesus never does that. And when they bow down worshiping after the stilling of the storm, he doesn't tell them to stop. When he raises from the, himself from the dead and they really begin to worship him because at that point they get it, he never stops them. And there's so many things that he says and he does and he doesn't restrict that make it so obvious that he believes that he's God. And then he proves it by doing miracles so that you know, know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, which only God can do. I'm going to do a miracle to prove it. And this makes it very clear as we go through. But the other thing that Luke begins to develop around chapter 9, so kingship is 1 and 2, divinity is introduced around 3 and 4. In chapter 9, Jesus says, I'm going to die. And the first thing out of Peter's mouth is, no, 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 no. You're not going to do that. Why? Because Messiahs don't die. Messiah kicks Rome's butt and frees us all. The Jews, throughout this time period, have been so dominated by the Roman Empire, and they have been so crushed for hundreds and hundreds of years that they had begun to forget about the suffering servant passages. But they didn't really forget about them. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 41, there's all these passages where the, the servant that God calls up to be the Messiah over the people is going to suffer. Isaiah 53 is the most famous one. There's beers plucked, he's pierced, he's killed for our transgressions and sin and all that kind of stuff. They so desperately wanted to be saved and freed and rescued and that the predominant number of prophecies are about a conquering messiah that they reinterpreted the suffering servants as them 
when you're being oppressed and you're suffering, and there's these prophecies of a Messiah who will suffer 10% prophecies, but the other 90 is conquering, it's very easy to begin to think, I don't want a suffering servant. I want a conquering king. And the vast majority of the prophecies are conquering king. And so maybe he's not a suffering servant. Maybe we're the suffering servant. Oh, yeah, that makes sense because we're suffering and we're God's servant. And they begin to reinterpret. If you, even if you talk to Jews today, they will say, that's, that's us. The problem is the suffering servant passages also talk about things that cannot be human. But they, they ignore that. And that's what we do too. We ignore things that are inconvenient or difficult to think. And so they begin to push the suffering servant passages out. By the end of the 400 years, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, they have no category in their brain whatsoever for Isaiah 53. They have no category whatsoever for Zechariah 3 of the high priest who will atone for their sins. All they have is Numbers 24, crushing the skulls of their enemies. Isaiah or Psalm 110, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. That's the only thing they have in their mind now. And you can't blame them. What they've done is wrong. But you can be sympathetic and empathetic towards them. And so when Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to die, Peter's like, what? That's crazy talk. And then Jesus begins to die, talk about a lot. Now, he, he's not a masochist who has a suicidal complex. Because if he were just obsessed with dying and then allows himself to be foolishly led into death, yeah. But the fact that he dies and conquers sin and death in the grave and raises from the grave again means that he's not a masochist who has suicidal tendencies. He has a purpose and a mission. And so he talks about this, but they have no room for that. And this is going to be the hardest thing. More times with that statement than any other statement, it will say the disciples had no idea what he was talking about. The disciples kept telling him not to do it. Even at the upper room, he says, get the swords. We're going to go and fight a war. But he means that metaphorically because then he turns around and says, i got to die and i got to be persecuted and die. And Peter's like, oh, I heard a sword. And he brings it. And so you need to understand that everything that we lean the vast majority towards, messianic, dying on the cross, and we tend to forget the kingship, lordship, conquering part, is the complete opposite for them. They have no category for this. So Luke is going to really emphasize this more than anybody else. In fact, he has a three-part structure in his book, and it's all designed around, I'm going to suffer and die. These are the mark, the, the point on the signposts. He is going to apply this to the Messiah. Because what Luke knows and what Jesus knows is that he is the conquering Messiah, but he must first conquer sin and death and the devil before he can conquer the evil in the world. That Luke and Jesus both know that the root of all problems is not a ruling, dominating Rome, but the sin that has led them to become that. The sin that controls us. And whatever you fear that is happening in our government right now, whatever you fear that is happening in the world right now, the real problem, though it is a problem, is not the government being corrupted, the government seizing more power than they rightfully should, but the sin that has infiltrated our hearts and society. That is at the root of it all. And this is why Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities. 
as the, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. What Jesus knows is that even while he's dying on the cross, he is still the conquering king. But he must bring the sword to the devil and to sin and the death penalty because we're all under the death penalty. When you and I die, we die for our sins and then we stay dead. But only in his death can he conquer sin and the devil and only in his resurrection can he conquer the hold of the grave over us that prevents us from coming back to life once we pay for our sins because when he dies for us, we don't have to pay for our sins anymore. He paid for them as for us. And then his resurrection allows us to be freed from death so we can live for all eternity. And this is why we have the first and second coming. The first coming is the conquering of the devil, sin, and the grave, and the death penalty. And then the second coming is where he deals with the leftovers. The, the people who refuse to submit to the cross and be freed of sin, therefore they must be dealt with as well. But between the first and second coming, we are called in the book of Acts to get as many people out of the kingdom of humanity into the kingdom of God so as few people as possible will come under that judgment. He has made a way for us to flee the kingdom of humanity into the kingdom of God without being trapped in the previous. This is what he knows. Death first. And this does not make him weak because no king has ever been able to conquer death. And nobody's ever been able to conquer sin. And this is why when he comes back to life, the disciples finally get it. And then they get it even more when the Holy Spirit comes into them and connects all the dots for them. He knows that he is the conquering king, but on the spiritual level first, and then the physical. This is why he had to be the God-man. Because here's the thing. If Jesus came and died on the cross as a human, humans can't conquer the grave. So he would die and he would stay dead. Now, first and foremost, if he was a human, he'd be sinful. And when he died, he would die for his sins. And for lack of a better word, he would have no more dying left over for us. Because he's only, his death has to pay for his sins, and he has to die for all eternity to keep paying for his sins, so he has nothing left for us. And then he would stay dead, and there would be no victory, because he has no power over grave, he has no power over sin, he has no power over death. So therefore, he can't be a human who dies for us. However, he has to be a human, because only humans have sinned. And he, only a human can represent you when they go to, this is why we have a jury of peers, not animals, okay, or, or angels, or whatever you want to call it, whatever the thing else is out there. It's a jury of your peers. And if somebody's going to take your place, it has to be someone compatible to you. Only a human can die for the sins of the world because only a human plunged humanity into sin and chaos. And so only he can do that. Only he can do that. But so then he also had to be God. God can't die because only a human can die. So if he came only as God, he would not be able to die. Therefore, he couldn't pay for your sins. He wouldn't be able to represent you because he's God and he's not a human. So he had to come as a God because he had to be able to conquer the grave. He had to be able to conquer sin. And he had to be able to live a sinless life. So being human allows him to die as well. But being God allows him to live a sinless life so that when he dies for you, He's not dying for his sins. 
which means if he's an eternal God, in a way he has an eternal death, because the eternal God of the universe is now cut off from the other members of the eternal trinity, and he is separated from God. This is why he says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And he is separated from God for the first time. That's what death really is, a separation from God. And he's separated from him. And in that sense, he can die because he's human. But because he's God, he can die for you. Because he's not paying for his sins. He's paying for yours. And because he's eternal and perfect and sinless, he has enough dying, so to speak, for everybody, for all eternity. But then being God means he can come back from the grave. And he can conquer everything. And this is why, without Jesus being the God-man, your and I salvation is absolutely futile and empty. If he's just a human, then we all die with him. If he's just God, well then, there is no death and our sins aren't paid for. And so he has to be both. And this is why it's so important that even though I spent quite a bit of time on this, you understand all three aspects of Conquering king, suffering servant, and God-man nature. Because without these three ideas, you're not really going to track the full significance of what Jesus is doing through Luke or any of the other Gospels. Does this make sense?